Hi, this is Tracy. You are listening to Teletalk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Teletalk with Tracy. Uh, I'm Perry Flynn, the consultant in speech-language pathology to the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. My friend Tracy Ball, who has been on all these Teletalks, is uh, a private contractor with Enable My Child. And we have two wonderful good friend guests with us today. Marie Ireland is the state consultant for the Commonwealth of Virginia. So she is the Perry Flynn of Virginia, or I am the Marie Ireland of North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, my friend Mike Makish, who is a program specialist and assistant director of exceptional children in the Brunswick County, North Carolina schools is also joining us. And you uh, see that we have uh, some perhaps unusual costumes on, and we are honoring the very strange and odd triple crown horse racing season with our Teletalk for today. Some of you know that I have a thoroughbred X racehorse, and so um, I've gotten my friends to be following the Triple Crown Trail too. And if you know anything about the Kentucky Derby, Marie and I are dressed like we would be sitting in the seats <laughs> of the Kentucky Derby, and Mike and Tracy are dressed like they would be in the infield of the Kentucky Derby. So, uh, that is, that is our dress code for today. But uh, getting down to business, we're going to talk about the ins and outs and ups and downs of assessment that might be happening in this COVID era virtually, perhaps. So Tracy, if you'd move on to the first slide. I'm gonna start out talking to you about um, some things that are pretty North Carolina specific about assessment and then um, Marie is going to talk to you about sort of the big picture of educationally relevant assessment. And then Mike's going to talk to you about what is going on, what the administration of a school district is considering in this COVID era with virtual assessments. So um, as I always point out, in a site-based management state like North Carolina, it is an LEA decision whether you will do face-to-face -face evaluations or virtual evaluations, all of the things that we are gonna talk about today um, are to provide you a big picture information for you and your directors of exceptional children, your administration and your LEA to make the most informed decisions they can for you acting in the best interest of children. So you'll want to consider whether you're going to do assessments live or virtually. And some of that will have to do with what our governor will be speaking about soon, um, about opening schools or not opening schools, all that stuff. So uh, on this July 7th, we are awaiting our governor's um, decision about what school is going to look like in opening up for the new school year. So um, everyone's worried about timelines and, and um, most everyone has really relaxed their concern about timelines. It, it just isn't possible to adhere 
to the timelines in North Carolina. We have 90-day timeline from um, referral to determination of eligibility, and th those just are not possible to adhere to in these times. So uh, you and your LEA will be deciding about how you are going to adhere or not adhere or how relaxed you will be about timelines. And then um, we encourage you to work with parents about the timeline situation. I think everyone is very understanding and accommodating in these oddest of all times. So to be sure to work with parents um, about accomplishing the, the assessments that you will do, how you will do them, um, standardized, non-standardized, virtual, live, all of those considerations. Uh, we hope you'll be discussing that with parents and working with them. And I, I think, as I said, so many people are being just really accommodating about all those things. So esteemed panelists, do you have anything else you would like to contribute to that North Carolina specific information? That sounds, that sounds like what we're in. Okay, great. I'm glad, <laughs> glad you're feeling the same thing I am. So I have a question yes. to our panelists. Okay. The options seem to be sort of leaning toward hybrid or mostly online, depending on who you listen to and, and what you know other places have already done. Where are your, in general, your thoughts on this? I know, Marie, you have two boys, I think, but they're college age or, or even graduate, I can't remember. Yep, they're, they're out of school. So I don't have any children myself in school. The state of Virginia is um, has already released some information about phased reopening. That's what we're calling it. So there are different phases for reopening in Virginia and they're tied to a number of things. Um, trying to keep children and families safe and, and educators. There are lots of requirements in terms of safety um, and health information and then also the instructional implications. And so we have, um, similar to North Carolina, we're very local controlled. So we have some school divisions that might be planning to stay um, virtual. We have others that might pl be planning to do a hybrid approach. And we have some that are planning to go back face to face. Those are generally our smaller divisions that have not as many children or um, not the large size to accommodate. But so things are moving along, but always with um, the understanding that anything could change any day, you know? So as, as we learn more about the virus and the rates, um, we're just um, hopeful and planning, but um, we have the same concerns about timelines and extensions. And I can talk about that when um, a little bit later, but yeah, that's what, that's sure. what's going on in Virginia. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he, okay. and here in Brunswick County, um, well, I specifically <laughs> am sharing a lot of the same concerns. I have a two-year-old and an expecting wife at home who's due in the next uh, month or so. So um, I have a lot of personal concerns. And then, of course, we're concerned about our students and staff that we're working with. Uh, we are the county over from... Uh, South Carolina specific, and Myrtle Beach, where we're seeing a significant uh, spike in cases. And we're starting to see numbers on the rise here. So we are just trying to be as proactive as we can be in making all of our plans uh, for 
in-person instruction, hybrid instruction, or remote instruction. We are just furiously working away about trying to see so we have something in place so that when an announcement gets made, we can try and be as seamless as possible, knowing that there's no way that any of this is going to be seamless. <laughs> uh, you know, we're just we're just trying to uh, do the best we can in the best interest of kids, which uh, I think yep. is something that was really important that Perry said in one of the previous podcasts. Yeah, great. I think one of the hardest components of this is the implementation and curriculum and really the connecting the dots at a high level where when you're in person and you're able to be able, you're able to team up with your you know, therapists and teachers and, and all the administrators, and you've got a lot of, you know, continuity in your planning um, that, that makes, it brings everybody, you know, together and it rises all boats. But when, you know, everything's very isolated and people aren't able to, to be in the same building together, I think it presents unique challenges to maintain continuity across a, a single school, much less an entire district or a state. And so um, that just makes the job of everybody that's listening to this much more difficult. So I think the my, my one thought about that is um, don't be too hard on yourself and, and make sure you're just doing the best that you can do with what you have, because it's gonna change and it's gonna, you're gonna get better as you practice it. But a lot of people are fearful to just take that first step. And I get that, but it's gonna get better as we learn how to do this remote and blended approach better. So I think that's a piece that everybody's a little uh, concerned about because it seems to look different. Uh, educating your child seems to look different um, depending on every teacher and then you know depending on how that teacher's engaged with the child and with their other team members and how they engage with the related service personnel. So I think it's just important to note that, that everybody that would be listening to this is, is going to have to, you know, um, just do your best and, and know that there's, there's definitely a learning curve here. So I can uh, move on to the next slide unless you have anything to add. Yeah, you can move on, but just to reiterate what really all of you have said, it's such a collaborative effort between, between the state department and the school districts and then within the school districts, the related service providers may have some information that is useful to directors to provide and directors certainly are gathering lots of information. Some I know are watching these podcasts too. Um, and as I said earlier, just really we're trying to give as much information as we can so that LEAs are making the most informed decision that they can in how they'll do everything, but specifically for this podcast assessment. Mm -hmm. So Tracy, you can move on to the next slide. <clears throat> Trying. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Uh, nope, that's like- uh -oh, Did it go too far? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's I was clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking. Yeah. And clicking. There we go. There we go. So I've had lots of questions from directors about, you know, what personal protective equipment that uh, they should be buying for their speech language pathologists to move. And we've discussed all of these things, masks, visors, um, the clear plastic screens that might go between uh, the child and the speech language pathologist. And 
I've even talked to some people about the possibility of uh, speech pathologists and related service providers, OTPTs, wearing scrubs that are easier to disinfect um, during this time. So again, those are all things that you might want to consider in, um, in making your plan for your assessments, however you're going to do them. And Mike's shaking his head. Mike, do you want to? Yeah, or just going to add that um, the wearing of scrubs is something that we are allowing and encouraging, especially for our um, teachers who are serving in self-contained classrooms or a pre-K population who aren't able to uh, social distance um, when we're doing our extended school year instruction that's uh, which is just started a couple weeks ago is something that we are allowing and encouraging yeah hey Perry I'll just chime in that um there's a lot of attention on personal protective equipment but we also just have to think about cleaning the environment you know what do what do we use to wipe down the desks some of our test um, protocols that will have test plates where kids point and touch things and so we want to think about being safe in terms of children touching um, you know an easel test plate where they select an item or manipulatives um, and so there are lots of other things and I'm guessing that your Department of Health and your DOE um, have a lot of information about cleaning and sanitizing and I think um, SLPs just need to be aware of that and follow the lead that's already been put out there to make sure that it's not just gloves and masks. Yeah, excellent point. And yes, on the, the printed guidance that we have um, on all the related service websites in North Carolina, there is a link to DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services information uh, related to this time. Uh, excellent points, thanks everyone. I was actually speaking, well, before you go on, Perry, I was actually speaking with somebody in North Carolina who's a director that, that has concerns about itinerant staff, not only school to school, um, because some schools are saying, I don't want anyone who's not a full-time staff member coming into my building, but also um, classroom to classroom. If you have a person going from room to room to room and those rooms have been essentially social distancing within them their own pods um they you know they're not going to the lunch room with anybody else they're not playing outside with other classrooms they're really trying to stick to themselves but you have a, a related service person going from one room to another that presents unique uh challenges um so does pulling those children out to a third you know setting and so you know, I don't know what the right answer is, to be honest. I think it's all, um, you know, to be determined and how each LEA wants to deal with that. But I do think that um, there are certain, you know, this, this podcast and a lot of what we talk about is around telehealth, technology. Um, there are certain ways to minimize the risk using, um, you know, interactive, you know, synchronous telehealth sessions where, um, you know, you, if, it, if a classroom has a smart board, if the, you know, classroom teachers, if they want to minimize the risk, um, you know, can work with a, a therapist um, and maybe the therapist goes into the classroom less and maybe they do a, a blended tele approach with that classroom or maybe for assess, assessments and evaluations, um, instead of using a flip book easel where there's lots of places to touch, you use some sort of interactive assessment on an iPad where it has one screen, right? And so there's lots of things that I think technology can help. I don't think it's gonna solve everything, 
but just kind of keeping with the theme of assessments and technology, um, I, I think that's something that people may want to consider. And a lot of a lot of therapists, um, this, all the disciplines are very creative. I mean, the stuff that everybody comes up with, um, much more creative than me. I, I certainly give give them credit for coming up with lots of solutions. Uh, the people that I've worked with in the past, um, and so I, I think the more we put the ball in their court and 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 try to get our own uh, teams to solve these problems and not try to present too much from the top down, I do think that bodes well for both our states, Virginia, North Carolina, being fairly localized at the LEA level. So um, I think it could be interesting if we learn something that works then we could share that obviously throughout. So um, just a thought. Yeah, excellent points about sort of cross-contamination, related service providers going from class to class to class. Yeah, um, lots of considerations there. So right, let's next, see if I can turn this. There oh. we go. So um, these are just some things to consider. They this, this statement and the connection to this webinar are again on the um, in the COVID sections of all the related service providers web pages from DPI. So if the uh, evaluation or reevaluation cannot be completed safely, ethically, and or legally, school personnel should communicate with parents about this and request extensions to timelines until a date when a comprehensive evaluation can be completed with integrity. So the federal government and state governments have provided some guidance on the implementation of IDEA um, with some flexibility and appropriateness for these times. So if, if you need it in writing, there it is, and it's, it's on all of our websites. And the connection to that really good webinar is also there. So you can move on to the next slide, Tracy. I want to I want to see what Marie thinks about this slide first. Okay, sure. <laughs> the original slide. Um, I want to know. Yeah, I want to know. I mean, are you familiar with the the um, I guess this webinar and in this statement that, that is being that Perry is talking about? Is this something that you're familiar with, or is that or that you have thoughts about? Because I think I've I've heard you talk about assessments and you know specificity. And, you know, is this the right assessment for the, for the situation? Does this assessment measure what it's supposed to measure, right? I know, I know you, you won't say it, but you're a, a very, very um, prominent expert, I think. And, and you're also pragmatic about how you go about what you are um, exploring. So when you talk about something, it's all about how do you use it in a real scenario. It's not um, theoretical ivy, ivory tower stuff. It's really usable. And so... Um, I think it would be helpful if you have any thoughts on this, because I, I think that's a lot of ambiguity in that entire paragraph. And no. I think it's also specific enough to make it, you know, somebody could use it, but it's, it's a challenge, I think, as a therapist looking at that going, wow, how do I use that? Yeah. So um, thanks for the great compliment. And I'll tell you, I it might look ambiguous on its face, but if you think about how it was framed and why it was framed, that language comes from the federal government and it's been reiterated by a lot of national groups, NASD, the State Directors of Special Education, CASE, CEC. And so um, there are a lot of webinars that highlight this information. I think as a boots on the ground SLP or related service provider, it's important to think about 
what does evaluation mean? And um, and you you all know my perspective. Evaluation is more than just a test. We're talking about all the data we can gather about these students from the time they're referred or when we know that reevaluation has to happen. And so the evaluation, um, there are lots of things that can be done safely and ethically and with good diagnostic accuracy. Um, it might not always be a standardized norm reference test though. And that's what we really need to shift our thinking. We have pivoted to go virtual. We've got kids learning at home, but yet, are we still reaching for the same test? So how do we flex or how do we pivot ourselves, you know, and think about what kind of data is going to be useful, accurate? Is it going to have the diagnostic accuracy, the integrity that we need? So um, I think what this statement is meant to do is give you the flexibility when you think about evaluation like it was intended, not just one test, not just one piece of data. Um, and if you do need data you can't get, you have some flexibility to extend that timeline, but it's not an invitation to just make everybody wait. There are some students and families who we can really do a good job with. So um, it's funny when I think about it, I think it gives me flexibility and it gives me permission and it highlights kind of that idea in my mind that evaluation and reevaluation is more than just a test. And um, so I, I think it, gives me some hope that I don't have to back up all my evaluations and go back to school in the fall and go, oh my gosh, how am I going to get all this done? You know, I can kind of chip away at it. Um, I am really glad that that's how you see that because I think that's the way that people should see it. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I think though there's a handful or more, maybe a lot of people that may see this as, oh, I can't, I can't ethically do this without a, a norm referenced standardized tool. And I, I, I really, I got to use myself. <laughs> so I, I you think um, it, it places more credence, more pressure on clinical reasoning, clinical yep. judgment. Mm -hmm. And some people that's great. They really embrace that. And some people fear that, that they do want to hang all their judgments on a standardized test. So, um, but as, as Marie said, I think it opens, it opens it up, the first sentence of the statement, I think really opens it up to clinical judgment and, um, you know, to the thought process of the, of the related service provider of the assessor to see if this is a, a reliable and valid, if you can do a reliable and valid assessment using many of the things that Marie talked about, non-standard things, observations, um, data that might have been collected before the COVID time that can really inform our decisions. So I, I see it, I think much like Marie does as sort of a freeing thing, but, but it, it, it does also, Tracy, like you were concerned about, sort of open itself up to interpretation and and I, I can't do this, I, I can't do it, it's unethical. Um, well, the reality is, is sometimes, sometimes members, members of the team, team, team might have to So how do we have to have So Marie, you're just, your voice is breaking up let's, a little let's, bit. Let's see if we can all mute our, our microphones for a second.
what I was trying to say was sometimes it's members of uh, other members of the team, maybe a parent or a general educator, or even a principal that wants that score. And how, um, so it's not always the related service providers. They could be sitting there listening to us saying, I do that, but nobody wants to hear it, right? And so what a good time to advocate for using those other methods and the utility and the value of that data. Um, and to remember that we're talking about calling kids disabled. And this is a serious decision. So we really want to have good good data and um, contextualized data. How are they doing um, with this virtual instruction? And are they participating? And what are the teachers seeing? So I think there's a lot of great data out there to be had. We just have to um, shift our thinking a little bit and advocate for others to do the same. I think now we're in a similar position with evaluations as we were with therapy back in March or early April. You know, think back then, we now have therapists who have been doing telepractice, teletherapy for months now and are just reporting great results and families that are saying, oh, this is so wonderful to have this resource. When at the beginning, they were very apprehensive. Oh, FERPA, HIPAA, you know, all we had all these concerns. I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, this this does give you a very clear checklist of here are the things that you need in order to be able to do that. And then also saying, it's okay if those standards aren't those three standards aren't met. Then it, we do need to take a step back and say we cannot do this at this time. It's more it's much more important that the student and the staff is safe than that we press forward in, in a uh, hasty manner. Let's let's stop and be thoughtful and do it right. Excellent points. Okay, I'm ready to go on the next slide. If you guys are. Sounds good. Thank Sounds you for your input. That was what I wanted. Okay, so um, some considerations here for virtual evaluations. Um, we've, we've talked already about some of these concerns, but there are many concerns and considerations that you'll want to think about before entering into the virtual evaluation world, and we've discussed many of them already. Um, will the results for a particular instrument be reliable or valid when administered through a virtual platform? Um, you can check the examiner's manual of some of the assessment tools that you're using. Some of them say whether it is reliable or valid to be administered through a, um, through a virtual platform. Sometimes, especially these days, you can go to the publisher's website and the publishers' websites now have information about their products and how sensitive and specific they are when administered virtually. And if none of that works, you can call the publishing company and ask that question very pointedly. Mike mentioned HIPAA, FERPA. We continue to have those concerns about confidentiality. I think really more in the realm of assessment even than in the realm of um, intervention. I think that we um, we talk about more sensitive stuff. We reveal information um, through assessment, more um, more kinds of confidential information than we might through the therapy platform. So just really, just really conscious. Conscious. I know your directors are very conscious of confidentiality over the the web-based um, delivery. 
And have you trained the parent as an e-helper uh, for the assessments that you're going to do? A couple of episodes ago, you know, I said that in, in the therapy that I've done with my graduate students, I really wish that I'd done a parent training session before the first therapy session. And I think particularly for assessment, you really must do a training session with parents about what is, what they can do and what they can't do and that they should not answer for their student or cue their child that, um, you, you know, some really clear parameters about what the helper on the other end of the assessment will and will not do in, um, in conducting assessments through a virtual platform. Okay, guys. What do you have to say about that? So, so uh, uh, I've been I've in this been world, in this world a, lot a lot this past, this past week. week. We, we actually, actually just came out with our guidelines for evaluations at two o'clock this afternoon. So <laughs> I was in the, the press. Yes. So I was in the process of reaching out to uh, the publishers um, regarding the ability for not just speech language assessments, but for all of our um, evaluators, all our related service providers to see what can and can't be done. Uh, Pearson had the Pearson website has some really great and very specific resources. Um, they've also opened up through their Q global program. And I promise this is not an ad for Pearson. Although if they want to reimburse me and compensate <laughs> me, I am open to that. Um, but with through their Q global platform, they are allowing for um, digital test booklets and scoring manuals. So th that can be accessed through an online platform. So that resource is available. Um, so there is information out there on those publishers' websites. There are other school districts that have published lists of what can be done and what can't be done. We have our own list as well. Um, so it's the information is out there. You just have to ask. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's a concern for everybody. And yep, lots of people are doing their homework on exactly what tools you own in your school district and what, which ones of those are uh, able to be presented virtually with reliability and validity. And I think there are a lot of things out there, including slam cards, narrative, um, picture stories that children can do, um, sequencing, following directions. There are lots of pieces of data that you can gather that aren't in that formalized, standardized kind of criteria. But the point about the e-helper and the training is so important. Even a parent who looks or smiles when a child gets near the right answer, there's bias built into that. And we wanna be sure we're getting really the true ability of the child. That's what IDEA wants us to get at, right? Do they really require these services? Um, I would also add here that just because it can be done doesn't mean it should be done. We might have a family that we're dealing with who's lost a parent or grandparent due to COVID. There might be some trauma, some job loss, some housing loss. And just because the test is okay to give virtually doesn't mean that child is 
is at the right time in their life, the family's at the right time to go through something like that. And so I think being aware, um, certainly of all the considerations that are on the screen, but thinking about social emotional stuff, thinking about trauma informed care, and thinking about how we can work with our families um, to ease them into this kind of data collection is is kind of an, uh, another way to think about evaluation because um, we might not realize what's been going on in, in a home. I love that. I want to bring that point from, take that point back to the beginning of the conversation where we started talking about how does the timelines impact, you know, change on the, the, the testing and evaluation environment? How do we do an assessment? Like what you just said, Marie, in one, that one statement, you can go back from the beginning on the first slide here, and it touches on every single slide. Um, how do you, you know, like, so for that particular case, we could be, we could be essentially communicating with the family. There could be some asynchronous data collection there. Maybe there's not a way to provide a, a Q global or a perfect, you know, in a perfect world to have that. But maybe we know this is a child that we're, we're going to assess when the time is right, but maybe there's been some social, emotional, um, you know, some serious implications from that that we just know is not right. But we can also communicate with that family to start taking some asynchronous data on how that child's behaving, how that child's learning, what they're doing at home. Um, by the time that child is ready for an evaluation and they, they, they get the evaluation that they're due, um, the data that that family may or may not have could be more valuable than any assessment that we deem standard that we think is important from a from a clinical perspective um and so i, I think that's a that's an example um of how using a more dynamic approach um could make a big difference whereas that child might not qualify when we get all that data and and we have parent buy-in and, and the child's in a better place maybe the child was sleeping at grandma's house for three weeks and now they're back at home and so they're going to be rested and well fed and all the things are right in that child's life that may be you know the case of that child qualifying when they don't really need it or not qualifying and maybe just getting further support through the gen ed program so uh thank you for that example yep excellent points from all of you um i think we're ready to move on tracy So some more considerations for the virtual evaluations. Um, Marie, we, we've all really talked about it. Could some non-standard observational tools or work samples be used and, and really yield more reliable and valid information than any standardized test that we might administer? And uh, Marie's just last statement that Tracy commented on really speaks to this. Consider how the student behavior at home differs from that at school and all those kinds of things, their social emotional health will have to be taken into consideration when you report results from, from any evaluation. All of those are, are sort of those ambiguous things that you just pick up as a, as a well-trained evaluator. Um, could a reevaluation, uh, could those decisions be made from data that already existed? before the COVID time. Um, we talked about that 
um, and, and then it wouldn't require you to do standardized assessment at this time. And think about the cost benefits ratio of doing an evaluation in this way or just reviewing already existing data or waiting till kids return to school. All of those things are things that you'll want to take into consideration before entering into this kind of evaluation. Other people have some comments on that? We've, we've touched on many of those things already. Um, I'll, I'll comment on that first bullet when it talks about non-standard. Um, I think it's important to realize even if the manual tells you it's okay to give it in a virtual format, if you're talking about a standardized test, we all need to remember IDEA tells us that if we give a test in a non-standard way, we need to detail that in our report. And so those scores, it's going to be hard to compare to that normative sample when everybody else took it face to face and this child's taking it virtually after not being in school for months and months and months. This is a real non-standard situation. And so we got to be careful, I think, about reporting the scores and how we document that in our evaluation reports, because it is something that um, if somebody asks a question down the road, like Tracy was saying, you know, are they eligible or not? We really want to be clear with the factors, the, the, con the context of how that was done. So I think just reporting the scores at all can be tricky because if you have somebody that pulls a score and uses it now in another place, whether that be on a tracking spreadsheet or some other database, they could take that score and not have context now and now it's a, now the score is the score without your report and the context is missing um and so that that is a a, a key ingredient here is um i don't know if you know uh there's going to be a way to, to to make that decision um across the board it's going to have to be done case by case but it's if you if, just thinking about that kind of makes me, you know, lose my words because I'm going, oh gosh, like that's a that's a lot of uh, slippery slopes to start going down if you're not careful. And so um, I don't know, Mike, do you do you have experience because you guys are just giving guidance on that? Do you have experience recently about what you're telling your people how to how to work through that? Sure. So I think that goes back to looking at the whole the picture of the whole child and not just any one source of data as the determining factor is are these assessments both things that are collected after the school closure and prior to the school closure are are we getting an act are, are those things all falling into a line and creating a, a picture of the same child or is, are we getting a significantly different picture post-COVID than pre-COVID. Um, I, I personally can't answer that, but it's, it goes to the individual team discussions and thoughtful discussion there using all of the evaluation sources and not just one score on one evaluation uh, and having that a real team approach. Excellent. I'm ready to go on if you guys are. I like it, Mike. Thank you. So we're going to turn Marie loose now. And uh, when, when I introduced her, I neglected to tell you that in addition to being 
who we all consider an assessment guru for schools. She is also ASHA's vice president for speech language pathology practices right now. So Marie, this is your slide, take it away. Thanks, Perry. Um, so, okay, a couple of things on here. What advice would I have for SLPs and LEAs? Um, well, I think we've already talked about the virtual platform, thinking about the, the accuracy and um, having somebody there in the environment. If, if you know me at all, you know that standardized tests are not my go-to for school-based assessment. Um, I think the impact of um, culture and language and poverty um, change the way so many kids interact with these norm reference standardized tests. And so the accuracy really isn't there for so many kids that we're evaluating. And that potentially means that they may score lower and we may be calling kids disabled who aren't just because they're different or haven't had the same experiences. So when I, what advice would I have in a virtual platform? The same advice I have in a face-to-face -face situation, right? Be very careful about the tests that you give. Understand who that norming population is, first of all. Understand that unique child and family situation. Are they at the right time in their life to participate in a test like this, social, emotionally? Um, and then thinking about, you know, are you going to, and if it's a yes to both of those, there's a good match with the norming sample and the child and family are in a good place, then how do you go about finding that adult helper in the home? Can you be sure they're going to, they're going to do their part with fidelity? Um, and then of course, writing it up, being very careful about the write up too. Um, the reliability and validity of standardized assessments delivered virtually probably just as questionable as when they're delivered face-to-face. -face. Um, again, we have a lot of resources in Virginia that we stress um, this should only be a portion, maybe a quarter at most of your decision-making data. Because again, poverty, culture, language play such a big factor. Um, so, and reliability and validity are you going to get the same answer every time? And does it test what it says it's going to test? Lots of tests can be valid and reliable, but that doesn't mean they're good, right? A vocabulary test tests vocabulary. And a kid's going to know and not know the same words every time you give it. But in Virginia, we call that thing on your car a tag. We don't call it a license plate. Kids miss that question all the time, but they know what that thing is, right? Or a sofa or a divan or a couch. What word do you use? Um, so the vocabulary test can be valid and reliable. Doesn't mean they're worth a hill of beans when it comes to um, educational assessment for special education. And the stakes are high. Remember, we're talking about whether or not a child's disabled. So I would say um, slow roll those standardized tests and make sure you're getting other data in there. Um, what's going on in Virginia? Same thing that's going on in North Carolina. We're doing the same stuff. We're being very cautious and careful. We're telling people all the things that, that you three have said already. Um, and to make sure you have that other data, parent checklists, narratives, language samples, talking with the general ed teacher. Whatever's going on instructionally in general ed is really important to answer those questions about need for specially designed instruction and educational impact. 
I joke sometimes, if I walked into any teacher and said, why does this child get speech and language services? If they can't give me an answer, why is that kid on a caseload? Because really, if it's not bad enough that the teacher even understands the problem, we got to be careful about um, our big hearts and really big ears and balance that with civil rights, you know, calling kids disabled and the outcomes of special ed. So um, we're being cautious and doing a lot of the same stuff that, that North Carolina is doing. Um, the benefits and risks to the districts and the SLPs. Well, we're local controlled like you. And so um, each district is gonna have its own approach and they're gonna comment on whether a score should be in the report or whether, um, you know, which tests or tools are allowable. I'm a really big fan of dynamic assessment. So if you have to give a test because your district says they need a number, then do what we, um, who like dynamic assessment refer to as test, teach, retest. So you give the test and then you do some, some structured teaching, some mediated learning, whatever you wanna call it. Um, and that's not special education, that's part of your assessment. It's part of your evaluation process. So you do a little teaching and then you circle back and you ask similar kinds of questions and you see if you're able to move the needle. If we can move the needle in one or two sessions, evaluation sessions with a child, then what I'm really seeing is perhaps lack of exposure, perhaps lack of practice. Um, and that's really important data for me. So I think dynamic assessment is really important. Um, so the benefits of doing those virtual assessments, you can do dynamic assessment. You can do language samples and observations and stories and games. Um, and I don't think there's a, a lot of risk per se in virtual assessment if you clearly document, you know, that it was non-standard and what was really, if you're honest and use your real good clinical judgment, I think that's a pretty, pretty safe place to be. Um, and we just need to consider that and we need to have honest conversations with our administrators and our families. Um, and if you really need it to be face to face, there's something you can't get virtually, then it's okay to delay that, you know? Um, so that's kind of what, what we're thinking about and uh, kind of how we're moving forward in Virginia. So I too am a huge fan of dynamic assessment. And I think people, speech language pathologists have been um, somewhat resistant to that in a, in a traditional evaluation process. And I have said to them, you know, you have 90 days and, and speech language pathologists are so conscientious. They want to get their evaluation done this week, but they can take their 90 days. They can pull that kid out, you know, every other day, every day, every other day, whatever, to do dynamic assessment and really get a great picture of of how that child is performing and and maybe through that dynamic assessment test reteach situation they are able to master the skill through the diagnostic assessment and then they are not eligible so um, I just had to put that plug in too because I talk to people about it all the time and um, like you I'm a huge fan of that anybody else have anything to Contribute, Mike's thumbs up. So there's lots of good online resources. They may already be on your page, Perry. Um, leadersproject.com. That's Dr. Kate Crowley. Out of Crowley yeah. 
He has um, narrative story cards for elementary and middle high. And um, somebody was kind enough to turn them into virtual tools that you can use for therapy or assessment. And those are posted on the website. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. And um, that's just one example of how you can use a great virtual tool to get some really good evidence-based data. I do, I do think Kate's website is linked on mine, but if it's not uh, a, an excellent point, I'll make sure that it is. Yeah, I was going to say, Marie, if you have a resources landing page where you typically point people to, we can certainly link to that in the notes and even maybe send a link to Perry's website as well so people can find it there sure. um, if, if you have something like that. Yeah, we have... Um... If you, I think if you just Google Virginia SLP or Virginia Department of Ed SLP, you'll get to the same page, like the equivalent of Perry's page. And we have the narrative card. We have some protocols um, for non-standard assessment. And we have a lot of data about the accuracy of those standardized tests. We have about 17 tests now that we've looked at. And so if you want to find out more about that stuff, feel free to um, check out Virginia. D-O-E-S-L-P. Got it. Great. All right, next slide. So we're going to Mike now. Mike with his frog fascinator. Yes. In honor of the Triple Crown season. <laughs> yeah, so this is, like I said earlier, this is very fresh in my mind. Uh, we are going forward with our plan. And what we decided uh, was the safest way uh, to complete our evaluations is we're going 100% virtual uh, for our evaluations. At this time, we uh, do not feel it is safe for staff or students to be doing face-to-face -face evaluations, or wouldn't be able to keep social distancing. So the virtual platform uh, is the way for us to go right now. Uh, we are using a combination of assessments uh, for our pre-K population. We already use an arena uh, play-based assessment, and we can get a pretty good facsimile of that with through teletherapy, through observing uh, in video, either live or asynchronous, having the parents sending videos. Um, so that is one way that we can accomplish the pre-K evaluations. And then for the older school-age population, we are looking at doing more of the uh, uh, traditional evaluations using uh, teletherapy as a modality. So that's what we're looking at right now. We are requiring a training session or a, a contact uh, before the session to make sure that we can have something close to a standard environment, that Jerry Springer isn't playing in the background during the evaluation, or that we can have that, uh, that people aren't gonna be running in and out that we can train the parent, that we can determine if the internet is going to be uh, reliable enough to have the, the quality of the picture or the audio that needs to be in order to have a, a valid assessment. You know, we are, Brunswick County is a rural county, so internet access is an issue for some of our uh, families. Something we have considered, uh, and what other districts might consider is having um, almost a, teletherapy lab for evaluations at a school location where the therapist could be in one room, the student could be in another room. That way you are able to do 
um, the social distancing piece and still accomplish the teletherapy evaluation uh, on a more reliable uh, internet connection. So um, that is another option to, to consider. Uh, as far as roadblocks that we're running into, well, the biggest one is getting started uh, and just deciding that we are going to go forward and proceed with this and start uh, chipping away and finding a way that we can thoughtfully um, start addressing uh, these this pile of <laughs> evaluations that we have uh, mounting up against it. Um, right now, it is kind of a, a daunting task, but and we do have a lot of questions from our therapists. But again, like I said earlier, it's the same as doing the virtual therapy. We are in three months time, I think we're gonna be a lot more comfortable. Uh, we do have therapists that know kids. We do know, now have therapists that know how to do teletherapy. And we know have therapists that know how to do evaluations. So through the transitive property, we have therapists that can do evaluations via teletherapy. Um, so even if they haven't done it yet, I'm confident that they will be able to uh, to do that. It, it will take practice, um, and it will take their comfort level rising. But I'm confident that we will be able to do that. Um, let's see what else. Um, as far as advice for other school districts, um, start by identifying what you can do. Um, <laughs> you know, you might not be able to do every, um, every related service provider might not be able to do their different type of evaluation, but what can you do? You need to do something for, at this point to start, um, chipping away at that backlog of evaluation. So don't wait and let that fear paralyze. You start doing what, what you can do, uh, as Anna would say in frozen, do the next right thing. See, I did it. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so also make sure you get um, stakeholder input from all of your related service providers and evaluators. Um, I don't own evaluation. My people know a whole lot, rely on the resources that you have. They know the questions to ask so that um, myself as an administrator can go through and say, okay, what is, a, what is something that is a have to have versus a wish to have? And start weeding through that information. So we started with our stakeholder meeting. I created a draft of our guidelines, then shared it with them after the fact and said, all right, does this work? What does work? What doesn't? What do we still need to change? Uh, and then also incorporating the information from the publishers. That helped a little bit to, to quell their nerves, but we'll see uh, where things go from here. Um, and let's see, advice for SLPs, you can do this. Again, you know how to work with kids, you know how to do evaluations thoughtfully, and you can do that through uh, teletherapy module. Um, the benefits and risks, as far as things that are considered, the biggest risk is the health and staff of our students, which is why we are preferring the, um, the teletherapy platform. That's the safest way that we can do what we need to do to give our kids access to services. Um, I think we are, as Marie kind of alluded to, uh, worried about the risk of over or under identification, um, which I would again go back to not relying on any one evaluation to be the determinant factor. You have to look at it as the global picture of the whole child. And that's not new to teletherapy. That is, that's good evaluations in general. 
So, uh, you know, we have yep. good people that do good evaluations. I'm sure you have them in your state, Marie, as well. So <laughs> we um, trust in the knowledge that you have and you can provide a, an analogous experience through teletherapy. Um, I think the benefit is trying to give uh, our students access to services as quickly as possible uh, and to, to try to get ahead. And uh, that's that's really where we are. Did I hit all the questions? I think so. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Hey, I've got a question for for all three of you. Um, has to do with social media because one of the things that um, I notice on all the different speech language pathology social media groups I'm in is that there are a lot of people saying, "Well, I want to do this," or "What are you doing?" And I'm just wondering. Um, is that something that you're struggling with trying to just remind everybody that we have rules for where we live and work and just because you read it on Facebook or Instagram or some other group, um, how are you dealing with that? And is that, um, is that a challenge for you as well? So I'll, I'll start, you know, Marie, you and I have talked about this in the ASHA world is that, you know, some people think they say my ASHA license. Well, ASHA doesn't give you a license. They give you a certificate of clinical competence. The license comes from the state. And so really the, the legal ramifications come from the state rather than from ASHA. And I, I feel like, I'm gonna say I feel like um, North Carolina puts out so much guidance information and really has around this particular topic that I feel like people have attended to what is pretty North Carolina specific. And I've tried to do a really good communications blitz about what is North Carolina specific. So I'll say that and I'm gonna go inside because the kids got to the pool next door and I think that things are gonna get a little loud in a minute. So I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take you all inside. <laughs> Perfect. So this is a great example of uh, how you can be uh, human and have empathy during times <laughs> like this where- and uh, Flexible. We're, we're, you know, yeah, we, we may be with a family or we may be uh, at home doing our therapy with the family and our kids may barge in and we may want to scold them or get upset or whatever. And I, I, I mean, we've all done it, but I think the, the, the smart thing to do is um, have empathy for everyone, both in your own home and in the homes that you're working in and trying to understand that, you know, as Perry has to change settings, like I'm sure that was a little stressful for him and he probably felt a little uneasy about that, but we still love you just as much as we did before you moved, Perry. Thank and you, we appreciate, you. and we appreciate, you know, that example because that's something that people don't get to see a lot of times in a professional video where everything's perfect and we we see this, you know, ivory tower example of what's going on. And that's certainly not our videos. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think it's just really interesting to 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 highlight that um, and, and also highlight Marie's question about Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest and all these places, because they do the same thing. What people share on their social media is the best version of themselves, unless you happen to wreck while you're wakeboarding. But <laughs> other than that, it's the best example. So when I see you know, a picture of Perry on Facebook, it's because he's you know riding his horse off into the sunset 
and that's like he's he's sharing the best moments of his day, right? Not, so when somebody shares off, a video, not falling off no, like he did a couple weeks ago. No, you don't. But when when somebody's sharing this, and this is I'm trying to tie this into Marie's comic, it's really important when somebody's sharing information about this therapy technique or this thing they did with an evaluation or that family, it is most likely a small fragment of their day. And it's not, it's, it's not likely that that's, uh, um, that that's, that's really, you know, gonna, gonna portray their actual work day to day. You're getting the highlight reel essentially. Right. And so using, using that to your benefit and knowing that this is a really great way to do it may give you valid or it may validate your thoughts on that maybe you had a similar idea or it may give you a good idea but it doesn't mean that that's the end all be all and that's that's the gold standard because there's there's certainly things that happen in between the instagram highlight reel that, that are more real life so um anyway i probably stopped my soapbox there but um yeah so i don't i don't know if mike you have anything to comment on that but i know um you know, I, it's just interesting how those two things tied in together. And here's Perry's cat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, outside it's a kid. Inside it's the four-legged kids. It's uh, you know, this is this is the reality of the virtual world. That's right. So uh, I try and keep um, a little bit of social distance with social media um, and those kinds of groups um, on Facebook. I try to keep an awareness so I know what my people are hearing maybe, or what they are seeing, but uh, Facebook, they don't work for Facebook. They work for Brunswick County schools. So while they may bring some input from there, we that's something that we consider and that we can incorporate into our stakeholder meetings, but we're going to incorporate all of that and then deliver the guidance. And this is what you need to follow. So I try to be aware of it as much as possible without getting uh, pulled down into the the mire of it is has been my relationship. There's some good stuff, but there's also a lot of uh, chatter. Craziness, yeah. So you know, I, I think this brings us this conversation brings us back around to to sort of the beginning and and what we said is that we are really trying to provide speech language pathologists, um, related service providers and directors of exceptional children with as much honestly true information as we can for them to make informed decisions about what is gonna work best in their LEA in the service of kids. So, um, you know, I hope that that is what we have accomplished in this last hour-ish with our expert panel of my good friends, people I'm proud to call my good friends. So uh, do you guys have any parting words of wisdom? Well, I just hope everybody knows how lucky they are to have such a great team down in North Carolina. And it's been really fun to uh, don my derby hat and join you all for this discussion. And now a, a word that uh, is new to this era. Now you can doff your Kentucky Derby hat and your, and your uh, froggy fascinator too. Okay, so um, again, I want to express my appreciation to Marie and Mike, and as always, Tracy, for being part of Teletalk. 
And um, so, you know, that's the end of this episode and you can look forward in a couple weeks again to the next episode. So thank you all for joining us and uh, please stay safe and healthy in these strangest of all times. Bye. Absolutely. I'll put some of the links, I'll put some of the links in the show notes to what Marie and Mike and Perry mentioned. Hope you all have a great day. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. We hope you like what you heard today. So please share, like, comment, and send to your friends and colleagues. We want to grow this podcast and make sure that we're able to reach as many people as possible and give as much valuable content as possible. Don't forget to check out Perry's website by Googling his name or checking the notes section. You could also check out enablemychild.com as it relates to telehealth support services and telehealth solutions. We hope you have a great day and thank you once again.